Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. We are going to be talking about uh, one of the central features in positive psychology. What is positive psychology? Positive psychology started probably with the work of Abraham Maslow, the hierarchy of needs, who focused on self-actualization. It's basically founded on the belief that clinical psychology and counseling theory and counseling psychology had become overly focused on pathology, the disturbances in mental health, rather than studying what we would say are the attributes that allow people to lead uh, lives where they are resilient and flourishing and have meaning in their lives. It's understandable. Obviously, psychology was at first developed as a tradition to address pathologies rather than to study high-functioning. And given my work offering uh, individual support, uh, people don't generally show up wanting to talk about their well-being and happiness. They most want to talk about the issues and challenges and disorders and that cause distress. So it's very easy for psychologists and therapists and those of us that work in the field to become focused on what's going wrong rather than what is going right and how to develop a flourishing and resilience, helping people isolate what are the traits, mental practices that are associated with well-being. So that's tonight's topic in general. We're going to be focusing on positive emotions, how they're cultivated and how they help us flourish and become resilient in life. We'll even do a practice where we try to develop some of those positive emotions. I should note that to understand why positive emotions are so important, we have to talk a little bit about uh, the three settings of the nervous system in uh, the course of evolution, we developed three different states of being that helped us survive, help all species survive. The oldest is immobilization, shutdown, freeze, dissociation, where we survive a threat simply by um, essentially um, not moving, becoming immobile, playing dead. Uh, freeze is the oldest. It's associated in many ways up to the reptilian brain. And uh, in uh, human life, it's very common. Uh, freeze states lie behind depression, brain fog, lack of motivation, times where people have monopolar depression and so forth. So immobilization is the oldest of the states of the nervous system. Uh, the second state of the nervous system that was developed was the sympathetic nervous system, which is associated with the exact opposite. Unlike immobilization or freeze, uh, the sympathetic nervous system is associated with mobilization. 
it essentially arouses us to take an action, to fight or flee. It's associated with hypervigilance, aroused threat detection. And when we are in a state of either immobilization or mobilization, the sympathetic nervous system, we have immediate, very limited reactions or responses to stimuli. If we immobilize, we freeze. If we move in, if, if we're in the dorsal dive of immobilization, but if we're in the sympathetic nervous system, we'll probably either uh, fight or confront with anger, or we will, sh we will become, we will try to get away, withdraw. And um, so there's not a lot of behavioral flexibility when it comes to either of these states. And mobilization states are pretty uh, significantly common in our day-to-day -day life. For instance, just as, you know, if a bird flies at your head, you'll feel this immediate impulse to duck that will not be driven by conscious processes. You'll simply duck. Many of us, when we feel criticized, will become immediately defensive. If we feel lonely, some people will be impelled to eat comfort food or text an X, which is always a great idea. Hopefully the humor came across there. Those of us who experience social anxiety and large gatherings might feel overwhelming impulse to drink. And for many of us, when we feel a deficit of dopamine, we feel worn down by life, a lack of motivation, we'll artificially raise dopamine levels by shopping. All of these are examples of mobilization states where a negative affect is immediately translated into a limited behavioral action um, that is compulsive and we don't have much choice very often. Uh, in mobilization states, behaviors can almost seem like addictions. They're so powerful and so difficult to override. One of the most common struggles with uh, mobilization is over time, it can turn into chronic stress. Chronic stress is uh, a constant state of hypervigilance, threat detection, vulnerability, loss of or change in appetite, insomnia. And uh, really what's going on is the uh, nervous system gets stuck in a state of dysregulation where everything becomes a threat. Receiving a bill can become a threat. Uh, getting a phone call or getting a text message or a knock on the door can feel like a threat. That, and when we're in chronic stress, our vagal nerve is intoned. And so our heart rate can soar, our respiration. And now the healthiest of the three states of the nervous system is called social engage, if we're do, using the work of Stephen Porges. And that's also known as the window of tolerance. It's neither up in stress, hypervigilance, mobilization, nor is it down in dissociation freeze. It's in this area in between known as also homeostasis. And in this state, we can connect with others. We can regulate our emotions to a degree that we can communicate rather than vent. 
So if we are in a mobilization state, we're not capable really of communicating. We're only capable of acting or frantic engagements with others. But if we are in social engage, we can say, I'm feeling, uh, I'm feeling frustrated. I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling uh, really happy today. I'm feeling bored or unmotivated. So we can connect with others, we can express a wide array, feel and express a wide array of emotions. And uh, when we're in it, our vagal nerve is toned, so the heart rate tends to stay below 72 beats per minute, which means from that we can, we have, a li we have our nervous system stays at a place where we can flourish and where we're in a very uh, healthy place because we're not, in the cortisol secretion of chronic stress or mobilization. When we're chronically stressed, cortisol is the hormone that uh, supplants glutamates and keeps us awake and alert and vigilant. When we're in social engage, we're not using or secreting cortisol. We're actually just using we don't need more than uh, the normal amount of glutamates to uh, function. And so a major factor in staying in the social engaged setting, which is the healthiest by far, where we don't wind up with all the maladies associated with chronic stress, such as arteriosclerosis and the, you know, the diminished immune function and all the diseases associated with that, as well as diabetes and um, uh, uh, ulcers and you name it, uh, chronic stress is disastrous for our physiology. To stay in social engaged, the healthy state, we uh, rely on positive emotions. They are essential for our functioning. And in fact, the work of a psychologist I'm going to be focusing on tonight is very influential along with all the others like Seligman and Jonathan Haidt and Sandra Leah Bamorski and Albert Bandura, Mahali Csikszentmihalyi and uh, Robert Emons. Um, Barbara Fredrickson, uh, who is I think at the University of Michigan, maybe now at the University of North Carolina, in 2004 developed what's called the broaden and build theory of positive emotions. Now what's that? Why is it important? Well, Barbara Fredrickson posited that um, just as our negative emotions, fear uh, uh, and uh, anger and uh, shock, disgust, and so forth, all had uh, played significant roles in our survival. You know, if you couldn't feel uh, fear you would probably be eaten in the past. But uh, what was the role of positive emotions? Why do we need them? Well, Fredrickson stated that positive emotions are essentially provide the foundation of what we could even call civilization, culture, uh, connectedness. Positive emotions broaden behavior Positive emotions allow us to develop creative, flexible, collaborative ways to think and act. Most importantly, they build affiliations with other people. If all we experienced were 
negative emotions. Negative emotions are withdrawal. They're mediated by the right brain, and they're essentially all concerning getting away from stimuli. So positive emotions and social engaged states of the nervous system are all about uh, approach, not withdrawal. They're all about staying with stimuli, staying with situations, and investigating, exploring, connecting with others, and building affiliations. That for us is vital because as a social species, we set our nervous systems, not uh, most primarily, we set our, we keep our nervous system set and social engaged by connecting with others. Our nervous systems are co-regulated by others. So for example, if you walk into a room and everybody is stressed out, implicitly over a very short period of time through emotion contagion, you'll become stressed out. Your foot will start tapping. You'll move from social engage up into, um, up into sympathetic nervous system and you'll become anxious. Even though there's nothing you were anxious about, you'll simply copy the state of others. But on the other hand, if you're in a state of distress and you connect with a friend who greets you warmly, listens, offers you empathy and mirroring, over time, you will limically co-regulate. Your heart rate will go down, respiration rate will go down. You're, you'll start to, you, this, the knot in your stomach, immobilization will be released. You'll start to relax. And then you'll start to no longer feel you have to act immediately. You'll start to want to um, uh, ex express what is causing the distress or the anxiety or the anger. So it's essential for our well-being that we be able to connect with others. And Fredrickson noted in her clinical study, the studies, many, many studies that she um, uh, put in this famous paper, The Broaden and Build Theory of Positive Emotions, that uh, uh, one of the most beneficial things about positive emotions is that they form the foundations of affiliation or connecting with other people. Again, positive emotions impel us or urge us to stay present, not withdraw, not um, run away, so uh, or not get away. Um, there's a challenge, though. You would think that... Um, you would think that given how vital positive emotions are, not just for physiological well-being, stemming the secretion of cortisol, um, allowing our nervous system to, to function in a way that is healthy, uh, but also allows us to connect with others, to build uh, positive relationships, people who will look after us. You would think that... Um, that this would be something that would just come effortlessly. But unfortunately for us, the, all brains have what are called negativity bias. What's negativity bias? Well, 
the, all the incoming sensory information that comes into your brain gets essentially ferreted to the switchboard known as your thalamus, which then decides what you become consciously aware of. But before the thalamus makes that decision, there's this fast circuit that bypasses all of our conscious processes. And it, uh, it essentially uh, 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 sends the incoming sensory data to the amygdala. Why does that matter? Well, the amygdala is the alarm system of the brain. It's sort of like the threat detector or the detector that something very important to our survival is happening. And the amygdala gets the first look at all incoming sensory data. And its primary job is to scan for threats. And it will very often uh, focus on anything that feels off or threatening in any situation. It will prioritize survival uh, at all costs rather than bonding. And multiple studies have shown that due to negativity bias, uh, we, we record, remember, and note negative stimuli with five times the neural redundancy than we notice positive. So the brain is set up not to focus on opportunities and positive stimuli. It's set up actually to first look for threats to our survival. And of course, this bias made sense given... Um, given our evolutionary history, where for most of our history, we were not safe. We were living in conditions that were uh, in many ways inhospitable when we were hunter-gatherers and there were constant threats from other clans and other species to, that could kill us. So it made sense for much of human evolution that we were biased towards threats. Um, so to overcome, uh, to overcome this negativity bias, this tendency or predilection to withdraw and to focus on, uh, possible stressors and situations, uh, over the course of, um, the development of our species and the safety, we became capable of cultivating positive emotions, which motivate us to engage, to not flee for safety, to stay with um, experience. And vitally, positive emotions are bilateral. They actually uh, engage the left hemisphere and that helps reduce depression as well. So examples might be instead of our usual wariness or for instance, my, I generally go to, uh, I'm not big, uh, I don't really enjoy weddings. And uh, normally I have a great deal of wariness and impatience if I have to go to one, which I generally try to never to have to go to one, but once in a while you get roped into these things. Um, and so I've found that in visualizing the positive experiences that could result maybe from the location of the wedding or maybe the possibility of meeting new people or maybe the possibility that I'll do something to reward myself after going to a wedding that allows me to actually stay engaged 
at weddings rather than to just sort of, you know, be kind of uh, mono uh, syllabic and stay, you know, sort of uh, just w counting the hours until it passes. Uh, Fredrickson notes that many people confuse sensory pleasures, things that feel good with positive emotions. So the feelings one gets after uh, having sex or the satiation of eating a um, full meal or the sense of, of uplift we might get from buying ourselves something uh, looks good, clothing or whatever. This kind of pleasure is essentially a reward for fulfilling basic bodily needs or due to some kind of change in our environment. The broadening effect of positive emotions don't come from eating a delicious meal or taking a pleasant trip to the beach where we lie in the sun. We might think that that's the same thing as a positive emotion, but all that is is a sensory pleasure. They motivate us simply to consume more of what makes us feel good. So if you go to the beach, and you enjoy being on the beach and it feels good to be on the beach, it'll make you want to go to the beach more, but it will not fundamentally change the way you perceive the world or help you develop new mutual affiliations with people and so forth. So sensory pleasures are fine, but they don't have the fundamental change in our nervous system, as well as the lasting cumulative effects of bonding and exploration and creativity that positive emotions have. Another uh, area that Barbara Fredrickson says is, you know, distinguishes from positive emotions are moods. Being in a good mood accrues generally from an accumulation of positive tribal events where people recognize you, uh, like something you post, uh, you meet a new friend or something like that. And these lead to a, a, bo a boost of serotonin and endorphins triggered by your dorsal anterior cingulate cortex. But positive moods don't transform how we perceive life. They don't uh, notably uh, lead to lasting changes in behavior, and they don't lead to significant neural regulation. What positive moods do do is very often urge us to continue in a line of thought that we're in when we're in a positive mood, and we can make regrettable commitments. Lots of people wind up taking the wrong job or committing themselves to a relationship or to some endeavor simply because they were in a good mood. Neither moods nor sensory pleasures, in other words, transform, heal, reduce reliance on maladaptive coping strategies, and neither lead to a market diminishment of stress. Because if you rely on moods, moods arise in the background and they pass in the background. Moods are dependent upon external factors. So, for example, if good moods happen because we have a lot of positive interactions with people, bad moods can be set in for feeling not seen, not paid attention to, not being highly regarded, and therefore we will wind up back in stress and mobilization. Contrasting with moods and pleasures, rather than changing our environments or relying on external factors, positive emotions lead to significant betterments, but they are 
engaged by actual meaningful cognitive reappraisals or reinterpretations. In other words, we put effort to create positive moods. This is where uh, I think Fredrickson's and others' work is fascinating. According to positive emotions, I should say, are based on cognitive work. It's actually something that we put some degree of mental effort into. What we're doing is we're shifting the way we discern or interpret an experience. For example, um, in a social setting where we would normally withdraw or feel shut down, the one would develop a positive emotion or a positive regard towards it by visualizing someone liking us or by uh, remembering, reflecting on times we went to social uh, gatherings where we expected the worst, but then met somebody who turned out to be a friend. So we actually have to work in some way. We actually have to put some degree of what the Buddha called varia mental effort into creating positive emotions. I think back on a trip I took uh, some, I'm going to say about uh, 16 years ago, it was a spiritual vacation in uh, a wonderful setting uh, during the winter. And um, a whole bunch of people from different spiritual traditions came. And naive me, I assumed there would be lots of Buddhists and, you know, uh, Hindu practitioners and etc. No, there were none. There was basically uh, a huge array of born-again Christians there. And uh, nothing against that spiritual path, but I was having a miserable time of it. I found them very difficult to communicate with. I found them to be very proselytizing, uh, very judgmental of the fact that I wasn't a Buddhist, very, you know, couldn't make any, couldn't make heads or tails of my tattoos and just were not uh, people that I felt were very welcoming or created a comfortable state. And so I wound up feeling a pretty immediately negative mood about the whole thing. Then what I did is I started this practice where rather than fighting against the experience, I set the foundation for positive emotions by first accepting what was happening. Positive emotions rest on this ability to accept what's actually going on. So I just, every time I saw yet another uh, fundamentalist in my midst, I would just think, yes, there you are, yes. So I removed the resistance. I removed the fighting in my head. And then I started focusing attention on finding anyone who didn't fit into. So instead of looking and focusing on fighting people that I could immediately tell were uh, evaluating me in this sort of, you know, withdrawal negative way, I started looking for anyone whose expressions were uh, welcoming and I started focusing on connecting with those people. And I moved myself into this positive emotional state. And I started actually 
stumbling across this small group of really, really lovely Quakers. How they wound up there with me, I had no idea, but they too felt, you know, uh, <laughs> overmatched by the population, but we bonded very well and it was a wonderful experience, but I never would have been able to connect with them if I had stayed in a negative emotional state of just, how do I get through this? Why did I make this choice? Why are all these people there? I needed to first accept the conditions and then systemically set my intention on finding positive stimuli. Switching perspectives rather than withdrawing by design broaden our behavior, whereas withdrawal is always about getting away, pushing away. Uh, broadening behaviors allow us to find, um, a find what new ways to embrace and be with a situation. So what are some examples of positive emotions? Well, the most obvious is gratitude. Uh, gratitude for any kindness we've received, reflections on gratitude for things we often take for, take advantage or take for granted, um, take gratitude for any gifts we've had, uh, gratitude for health, gratitude for, um, gratitude for uh, skills we've developed, Another way to develop a positive emotion is awe and appreciation. That activates bilateral, both left and right brain, wherein we note the complex conditions that create, for instance, the natural world around us, or we appreciate just the complexity that allow they, of all the different systems in the body that allows us to maintain consciousness. Pride is a way to develop positive emotions. Pride is reflecting on how we've been beneficial to others or how we would like to be beneficial to others. It's literally holding in mind visualizations of examples of people that we've helped. Resilience, reflecting on how in our lives we've already overcome so many difficult, surprising, even catastrophic situations. Often in life, being confronted with challenges, we tend to, many of us tend to catastrophize, visualize the worst possible outcome. And one way to counteract that is to learn and develop this habitual practice of reflecting on all the times we were caught off guard in life by strange surprises and managed to thrive and then reflect on the fact that we now have even more skills, even more wisdom. Perhaps we even have more resources to help us thrive. The Buddha noted that positive emotions had to be cultivated on a daily basis through what is called um, the uh, new satis. The Buddha was very, also like Fredrickson, did not believe that sensory pleasures nor good moods were in any way conducive to the long-term spiritual goals. In fact, Sukha Vedana 
pleasure in the body, experiencing sensual pleasure, and chitta pasada, which is being in a good mood, uh, is not considered to be one of the factors that the Buddha recommended for the, the, the path to the holy life. He did mention the fact, some of the, many of the factors that I just listed, for instance, gratitude uh, is a huge practice. And in fact, the Buddha said that uh, anyone who doesn't practice gratitude will find it very difficult to have any peace of mind. Appreciation, appreciation mudita is learning to not just appreciate our own uh, rewards and our own jo our own successes, but appreciate the successes of those that we care about, uh, rather than view other people's successes as a threat or coming at our expense. Positive emotions are developed by learning to feel appreciative of the joys of others. Acceptance of conditions is considered upeka, considered to be an enormous foundation for positive emotions and are mentioned frequently. Reflections on our friends, kalyana nusati, just reflecting on those who've been available. Reflecting on times we've acted in a moral or with some degree of rectitude when we could have acted in ways that were selfish or harmful, sila nusati. Reflecting on all the times others have been generous or kind to us, or we've done the same for others, kaga nusati. And reflecting on the, our ability to experience peace of mind, uh, santi nusati. Most important is that none of these are things the Buddha say and Fredrickson, you know, notes are things that come about naturally or easily. These are actually reappraisals or a systemic practice of reinterpreting the world around us or conditions around us. Once again, the brain's or the mind's predilection towards negativity bias means most often we will be inclined in novel situations to spot people who seem disagreeable, situations that seem challenging. Uh, if we receive a bunch of envelopes, we'll look immediately at the bills that are in there. So to actively keep ourselves in social engage, the healthy state of the nervous system. We want to have a practice where we start re-inclining or essentially reinterpreting the world around us uh, towards um, uh, positive opportunities that will keep us engaged. Now, before we go into the meditation, finally, I should note that when we hear this, we might think that this is a kind of attempt to suppress negative emotions. It's not. This is not the equivalent of men who tell women to smile when they're unhappy, but we're not doing that with us. We're not attempting to railroad or pave over or suppress awareness of negative experiences. In fact, it's important 
it's essential that we be able to feel negative affects, negative feelings. They're just as adaptive and just as necessary for survival. And much of my talks are about processing negative affects, negative emotional events. But this practice of cultivating positive emotions are the ways we restore ourselves back into homeostasis after we have experienced a negative event, experienced the negative feelings or emotions that follow in its wake, but we don't want to remain stuck in an affect. So I just wanted to clear that up. So hoping tonight's talk is of some value, we're now gonna actually put it into practice. So let's just take a moment and find a comfortable seated position And as always, uh, if you would like to support my work as a Buddhist pastor, I do everything by donation only. Uh, just putting out there that I'm supported by your contributions. If you have uh, resources, if you don't, no worries, of course. Um, if you do have the ability to support my work, the Venmo is Dharma, P-U-N-X, N-Y-C, Dharma Punks, N-Y-C or you can go to that website, dharmapunksnyc, and you'll find the PayPal. So that's it, that's my pitch for keeping me fed. And now let's go into some practice. So finding a comfortable seated position and closing the eyes and just reeling back your thoughts and awareness from the world around you, from the screen that you know is in front of you, from the room that you know is you're situated in, and just reel your awareness back into your internal experience, becoming aware of the sensations occurring in your body, and we can actually help this process by creating some sensations. So let's start from the bottom. Just squeeze your toes if you like, just to feel the sensation of your feet on the floor, if they are, and then relax your toes and just feel the soles of your feet resting on the ground. And if you want, then squeeze the muscles in your thighs and relax. When we tighten and release muscles, they actually become far more relaxed than if we don't tighten them. Muscles always carry a degree of action potential or clenching unless we systemically release tightening the muscles in the buttocks, slightly lifting up the torso, then releasing and allowing you to sink into the seat, allowing the belly to expand with the in-breath and then with the out-breath, release, breathing into the belly. Abdominal breathing is very conducive with ease. 
And then breathing in, lifting the shoulders up so they're near the ears, holding them. And then before we release the breath, rotating the shoulders back and then dropping the shoulders with the exhalation. And finally, squeezing all the muscles in the face, tight, 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 clenching, locking the jaw, tight little nose, furrowing the brow, and then breathing out and just releasing all the muscles in the face. And then allow your awareness to survey your body and see if there's any area that feels numb or tight or heavy. And then see if you can make any adjustment to really take care of your body. You might want to breathe into any tightness and then soothe that area with the breath, or you might want to adjust your body so that the posture is more conducive to ease. We're really changing awareness from looking around the world for things we have to deal with, fires we have to put out. We want to shift awareness to now an awareness associated with self-care, which is, of course, conducive to positive emotions. So let's take a little while in silence, just surveying the body, using the breath or using the ability to send very gentle messages in the, from the mind to the body saying, relax, soften, settle, it's okay. Just practice cultivating that gentle, accepting, caring awareness. Allowing the mind to settle on 
either the sensations of the breath and if you use the breath, try to incline the exhalations to be as long and smooth as possible. That's a wonderful way to restore both vagal tone and restore the nervous system to the social engaged setting because longer exhalations release acetylcholine, diminish excitatory neurotransmitters, allow the nervous system to settle Also, long exhalations help adjust respiration rates. Or another practice, if you like, is find a sensation in your body that feels pleasant and just see if you can spread that sensation in some way through your body. So if you might feel like a pleasurable sensation in the palms of your hand or your calves or maybe some area in the face, but just try to spread the pleasant sensation. Of course, sensory pleasure is not the ultimate goal of this practice, but it's a good foundation to restore us to a state of ease where we then can cultivate positive emotions.
Right now we've got nowhere to go, nothing to do. We just want to come to a complete stop in our lives so that we can pay attention to the feelings and internal states beneath all the busyness of the world around us to make any form of meaningful change in life. It's not only about changing the world around us, but also learning to cultivate change within how we attend to our experience rather than avoiding awareness of our body and our emotional states becoming aware with a gentle nourishing awareness rather than repressing or suppressing our underlying moods or feelings, just opening to whatever is present. Thank <laughs> you. 
So now we're going to try to put some of the tools we've discussed into practice. For the purposes of this exercise, I invite you first, before we try to cultivate a new interpretation, I'd like you to, or invite you to bring to mind some task or chore or obligation we have to uh, engage with in the future that we're not looking forward to. <clears throat> Perhaps something we've been avoiding or a situation we might have to uh, engage with that uh, doesn't elicit any sense of enthusiasm. If anything that comes to mind use that because this is going to be helpful to uh, for this practice. If anything comes to mind, if nothing comes to mind, no worries. But if some obligation or event or interaction we have to engage in maybe a conversation or something that we're not looking forward to, just bring that to mind, hold it in mind and just see what one, what we feel as we hold this uh, event or interaction that we're not particularly enthusiastic about to see if you can feel the impulse to push away, withdraw, avoid. Maybe it's embodied, maybe it's more just uh, thoughts. I just wanna be aware of the negative emotions that, or the negative impulses that a context or a situation can evoke. And just setting that to the side, don't push it from awareness, just set that concern to the side. And I'd like you first to bring to mind images of people that you feel you can use as resources, friends, people who, anyone or any number of people that are there to help you uh, express your feelings, people who listen, people who are in some way emotionally open. Even if only one person comes to mind or more, just visualize their faces and see if you can, while you visualize their faces, visualizing them with a positive expression, welcoming, What we're doing is trying to just turn our attention to 
resources that remind us that we have ways, people available to help us process anything that's difficult. And now to bringing to mind some previous experience that we might have dreaded, but actually turned out to be nowhere near as unpleasant or difficult or even, dare I say, even catastrophic as we visualized. Many times we dread some kind of conversation or interaction only to be surprised that it was simply not as challenging or painful as we suspected. See if you can just span your memory resources and if no specific event comes to mind, just re remind yourself that often interactions we dread actually turn out to be completely different than we expected, sometimes even quite easy. Maybe some interaction with an official or someone, a customer service or something we went into with a degree of stress and left relieved bringing to mind people that we've helped, people who have benefited from us, people that we'd like to help, reflections on Positive interpersonal events builds up a sense of pride, sense of resilience. Just visualizing anyone who we've extended our time towards, just visualize them looking at us with a facial expression associated with appreciation. knowing that nothing can ever get in the way of our helping others.
And then finally, bring to mind something right now that we're really grateful for in our life. Something that will be with us during any difficult interactions and after. Let's visualize what is it, our the fact that we are healthy despite so many who've become ill during the pandemic or reflections on activities that bring us joy and creativity and growth that we still have. things that are still available to us for some gardening, drawing, writing, listening to music. Yoga, what is available to us that allows us to enact our highest sense of self, well-being, See if while we visualize these activities, we can, without forcing, just cultivate, if not a smile, just a, an open, relaxed mouth or a soft half smile. Smile, not forcing a smile, but relaxing the mouth into a half smile actually has been shown to influence emotional states. And finally, bring back to mind the event that we previously held in mind that caused a degree of uh, felt unwelcome, the upcoming or any event that we have to go through that we're not looking forward to. And now hold it in mind after these reflections and see if there's any subtle change in the way we relate to this obligation. What we just did was reinterpret We put effort into visualizing opportunities, skills, abundances, and hopefully that will allow us to engage in something we're not looking forward to, not from a place of withdrawal or negativity, but perhaps with a little less 
of those states. So I'm going to, in a moment, ring the bowl. And when you hear the sound, just take your time. Just in whatever pace feels right for you, just open your eyes and return your gaze to the world around you. So, uh, thank you for listening. I thank you so much for showing up. I hope that something tonight was of value in some way. I hope to see you again next week.